Okay, it looks like all of you know the pattern. We're standing already. So can we uh, just turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 at verse 8. Verse 8. So Peter writes this. He says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why don't we pray? Lord, as usual, we come to your word with great expectation, not because we're trying to uh, pull out of the scriptures uh, things that we want to hear in terms of like fulfilling our own desires and our own sort of theological agendas, but because we want to know and hear from you first. And here we have two short verses, but verses that are very impactful and reveal your heart towards the lost. We want uh, to glean from these two passages everything that you have to offer us. And I just uh, pray in your Spirit's name and your Spirit's power that uh, we would uh, be affected by the message today. Not because of me, but because of your Spirit guiding me. So we look forward to our time together. and. Uh, a time of encouragement and a time of strengthening because this will be a sermon that is light-hearted and uh, very encouraging compared to the rest of the letter which has been very condemning but again you were dealing with a specific issue back then it had to be addressed so uh, we just uh, we are looking forward to our time and we just ask you to go before us in jesus name amen Uh, before we jump into the heart of the passage, let's take a couple of minutes to remind ourselves of where we left off last time, since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the letter. Uh, you'll remember that in verses 1 to 7, uh, Peter had devised a battle plan. Um, there were false teachers in the church uh, threatening uh, the um, believers there, and uh, they wanted to basically derail these men and women from their faith. And so he devised the battle plan to help these listeners combat them. And uh, this, of course, surrounded the heresy surrounding the second coming of Jesus. Uh, they did flat out denied that this event was ever going to occur. And we learned that this came from the uniformitarian view of the world. That the world was governed by natural processes that could not be altered or interrupted. So even if there was a God, they would think, um, he would never seek to enter into creation and get involved in human affairs and change the course of history. So Peter's battle plan then was twofold in response. He said, first, uh, don't you remember, oh sorry, remember the word found in the, in the scriptures are truth. There's truth in God's word and he spoke in the scriptures of the certainty of the Lord's return. So go back to the word of God to remember that these false teachers are, are ludicrous in their assumptions. Second, Remember that in two ways, God had already significantly interrupted history. And he reminds them of the great flood in Noah's day, and he reminds them of creation of the world. So this idea of uniformitarianism, which was like going on with these natural processes, ludicrous. God's already interrupted and come into human affairs on two major accounts. So Peter's message was loud and clear to these, these uh, believers back then. If you have any temptation to listen to the false teacher's message, don't believe a word he, they say. He is coming back for sure. 
The questions would have come then from that teaching. And there'd be questions that you and I would have even today if we were in the same situation. If, the, if he was coming back then, where was he? Or, if he is coming back as a guarantee, when is he coming back? When is he returning? And if he is coming back soon, what's taking him so long? Now, remember the context of these, of these uh, churches. It's like living in Iran, Afghanistan, China. Not like Canada. We're, we're getting there, but in not the same way. They were constantly faced with persecution. Life for them was not easy. They had many hardships throughout their, um, throughout their lives. So, when you consider those things, you can see why the Lord's return was a really important issue. So in verses 8 and 9 then, Peter provides them with the answers to the Lord's seeming delay. Let me help you understand why he hasn't returned yet, when and why he hasn't come back at this point in time. But before we dive into those verses, I want to just talk a little bit about an important characteristic of the early church. Because these men and women waited with great eagerness and expectation in anticipation that the Lord's return would be imminent. Now, where would they get this idea? Why would they think that the Lord is coming now, coming soon? And why would this be an issue for them? Well, it came from the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. This is what Jesus said in Matthew. He said this to the, the disciples. Be on the alert, for do you not know which, sorry, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So again, be alert, be on guard, because you don't know when I'm when I'm returning. So again, there's this issue that uh, it's, it's 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 in this time period, it's going to be in their lifetime. We have in uh, James 5:8, he says, "You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near." So it's going to be a very quick return. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. Okay, and we all know the last hour is a reference to the coming of the Lord in Scripture. And Peter himself, in this, in this previous letter, says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So we have James, the Lord's brother, saying he's coming back right away. We have Jesus himself saying, he's coming, be on alert, I'm coming back soon. The Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, all saying to the churches, get ready, it's coming soon. The whole reason the Thessalonian church was in a mess was they thought they missed the Lord's return. Remember, some of the people had died as believers. They'd gone into the ground. And the remainder of the people who were alive were panicking. What happens to those who have died before the Lord's return? Well, they miss the resurrection. And Paul writes an entire letter to deal with this issue. So again, this is a massive understanding that the, the characteristic of the early church believed that the, that the Lord's return was probably going to happen in their lifetime. I mean, he don't, it was 8033, arguably, but pretty close, 8033 that he died. These men and women are only 20, this, these letters are written 20, 30 years later. So it's only like 50, 60 AD, and they're expecting the Lord's return. This is important to understand theologically. So this is where they get it from. And so Peter has to remind them in verses 8 and 9, let me tell you why the Lord has been delayed. Let me, let me tell you, even though it's been, we've been teaching it's imminent, let me help you understand what's going on here. But before we get into that, let me just say there's an important lesson for us. 
we are also told by the New Testament to be eager for the Lord's return. It's an expectation on us as well, not just the early church. Let me just read to you three quick verses. Jude 1.21 Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Luke 12.36 This is what Jesus said. Be like men who are waiting for the Master when He returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to Him when He comes and knocks. And 2 Peter 3.11 and 12, we're going to hit these verses next week. But look just two verses later. Since all the things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the and hastening the coming of the day of God? Okay, so again, he's saying conduct yourselves well now in this, in this lifetime because the Lord is coming back. So again, it's pervasive in the early church that they believe this, and it's also important for us to understand this as well. We are to be known as men and women who are eagerly waiting for the Lord's return. The question is then, if we're to be waiting in anticipation, what does that look like for us in terms of life? Are we to sit around twiddling our thumbs? Are we to start panicking and should we start storing up like food in our basements like some people do, waiting for this day? Or are we to be uh, just like, are we too lazy at work or just quit uh, sort of like in our evangelism because he could be any dare now, so what difference does it make? Well, of course not. Of course not. The Bible actually gives us lots of instructions about what we can do to stay busy here while we wait. And this list is not exhaustive. Not exhaustive, but I thought, you know what, why don't we look at what Peter tells us to be busy doing while we wait. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Just back a couple pages. Let's read 4, um, beginning in 7 and read to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, look at what we're to be staying busy doing. The first thing we, uh, Peter calls us to is a concern for personal holiness. He says, have sound judgment and be sober in spirit. Sound judgment, in the Greek word, means to be in one's right mind, or to be sane. In other words, it's a call to be rational and level-headed. We know of people out there who, who write books, uh, who have predicted the exact return of the Lord's date, and every single person who's written a book has uh, gone and missed it, right? Because they, they believe they have some special revelation. You know, we see people forming cults and, and gathering together in small groups and like in weird houses and acreages and all sorts of things in, in, in anticipation because there's a full moon or some, something's happening in the stars that the Lord's coming back. And so they've, they've read into scripture incorrectly and they're doing all sorts of wacky things. He says, no, don't be like that. Uh, be le rational and level-headed. Be sober in judgment. We also have sober in spirit. 
which in Greek means to be vigilant, so to be cautious and on guard, yet on high alert. I think of a deer. Have you ever come up to a deer? There's uh, lots of deer prowl our, our communities. I've noticed that ones that in our neighborhood, when I open the door and get outside, they're eating the, the, the you know the, the my neighbor's uh, trees. But as soon as I come outside, they stop, they look at me, and they stare at me the entire time with their ears pointed up, but they continue chewing. So they're busy going about their business, but they're making sure they keep on high alert that I'm not going to do anything. They stay cautious. They're on guard. And that's the kind of thing we're to be doing. We're to not be in a frenzy over the Lord's return and acting all weird and crazy. We're just to be going about our business on guard, but having your ears up and being on high alert. But these two characteristics are for the purpose of what? Prayer. Prayer. Prayer, then, is an activity God wants us to occupy our time and to stay busy with. Now, I don't think Peter's saying this. If you are not in a state of being sound in judgment or being spiritually uh, sober, that you can't pray. I don't think he's saying that because all, we've all experienced times when we've been a bit panicky and a bit uh, off and uh, it's actually a good time to come to the Lord in prayer. So I think what he's saying is rather that these two virtues cemented in one's life allows one to pray more effectively and even more appropriately. Because you're praying for the things that God cares about and your mind is focused on the things that He wants. We're also to be concerned for the love within the Christian community. We see that in verse 5. Sorry, verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. One another. Context is the church community, not outside the church community. Not that we can't love outside the church community, but the primary focus is within the community. Now, the love Peter's calling us to is not sentimental. It's not driven by deep desire for, uh, um, and uh, that desire being necessary for, for service. But it's a, it's, a, it's a love that's sacrificial, a love driven by choice, and an exercise of the free will. How do I know this? The word fervent. The word fervent in, um, in Greek means to strain like, to be under tension, to be strained like a muscle. So you've ever seen a racehorse in the Kentucky Derby? See the, you see all, in slow-mo, you see all the sinew of their, their hind legs and, and, their, and, their, and their mouth open and they're just straining like crazy and the, every fiber of their being is racing towards the end. That's the kind of picture Peter has in mind. It's that kind of strain, straining of a muscle. It's full tension. Man, we can relate to that in this church community, can't we? How hard is it sometimes to love one another with our idiosyncrasies and our preferences? <laughs> if it was based on emotion, a lot of us wouldn't serve one another, to be honest. What unites us is the Holy Spirit in terms of being a community, but we still have very individual in our preferences and our wants and desires. But God, but Peter says here, you're to fervently love. You have to strain to love one another. It's going to take that sometimes. So it can't be a sentimental, emotional-driven love. It's great when it is. But man, it has to be sacrificial. Exercise of the will. An exercise of choice. And to seek to put one another's needs above our own. How about hospitality? He says here, we're to be hospitable with one another without complaint. We're to make it a habit of inviting one another into our homes. We're to care for one another's needs by providing things such as food, shelter, and even clothing. And we're to do so, the key feature, is without complaint. 
So we're to invite others over without belly aching about the time it took us to make that meal and have them clean the house. We're to do it without the, reminding them of the efforts we put in to have them over. And, and God forbid we ever remind them of how much it cost, them, cost us to have them come over and eat that special meal. <laughs> so don't ever tell them, like, well, these steaks cost 30 bucks, you know. Okay? Don't ever pull that one-liner. <laughs> okay? So again, hospitality. That is something we're called to without complaint. We're also called to uh, spiritual service. A concern for spiritual service. Specifically, exercising of the spiritual gifts in verse 10 and 11. And Peter reminds us of two gifts. There's speaking gifts, and there's administrative or action gifts. Okay? But he gives us instruction on how to administer these gifts within the church. And the key here is this. They're, they're, um, they're not for personal edification, but for the benefit of the church community. It says, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the exercising spiritual gifts is so that the Lord is glorified through our gift, our gifting thing that he gave us. This is reminiscent of 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now each, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And later on in chapter 14, two times he says that the church may be edified, be built up. So, again, we're to stay busy within the church community, exercising our gifts the gifts of, of, that we have in our speaking and the gifts that we have in our service so that we don't get praised and look good, but the Lord receives that edification and the church does well as a whole. So these are really, really important features. We are to be waiting in expectation for the Lord's return, but um, we are also to uh, be useful for the kingdom here and now. I decided to preach the sermon in a different order, so I've got to find out where I should probably go. <laughs> See, that's being led by the Holy Spirit, not being stuck to notes. <laughs> but now when you do that, you get stuck in trying to find your notes. So. All right. So Peter's first, um, first uh, desire for the church is found in verse 8. Let's turn back to 2 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8. Peter provides here reassurance and an answer to the seeming delay of the Christ's return. First thing he says is that God's timetable is not the same as man's. God operates in a different timetable than man does. Verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Peter was probably paraphrasing as a Jew, familiar with the Old Testament, from Psalm 90, verse 4. I'll read it to you. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Now a watch in the night in Hebrew thinking is four hours. The point of the psalm, in its original context, is to speak to the eternal nature of God, who, being eternal, perceives time much differently than we do. A thousand years for him is like a four-hour watch in the night. When you're eternal, what difference does it make? Okay? So Peter, with this thinking, draws it into verse 8. 
So he says this, While the second coming of Christ may seem like an eternity to you, church, it's nothing to the one who exists from eternity. Right? It seems like forever for you, church, but it's nothing to a God who is eternal. It's just like a blip on the screen for him. That's important to notice it's not a literal interpretation here. He's not saying a thousand years is a day, or a day is a thousand years, as some people have, I've heard say. It's a simile. Like. A thousand days is like a year. Uh, uh, a thousand years is like a day. It's comparative language to make a point. And we do it all the time in our culture, right? Man, that guy, he's like an ox. None of you think, you're looking for a guy with a tail and big horns and a big... None of you do that. You understand exactly what I mean. You're looking for a guy who's probably like thick, big, and strong, right? We understand that kind of language. But I believe Peter's telling his church this for a simple reason. Is that, is that they need to be patient. Yes, he's coming soon, but you need to be patient in that. And if you're anything like me, and if we're anything like them, you can see why that's important. What happens to me when, my, when time and my schedule doesn't go the way I want? And someone messes up my agenda or things get all delayed, I often get impatient, upset, and frustrated. You ever get like that? When you have a timetable and it doesn't go your way, how do you respond? Probably kind of with anxiousness, frustration, impatience. And it can often lead to us giving up or losing hope. Losing hope. And so Peter just wants to remind them, listen church, I know it seems like an eternity to you, but don't lose hope. Don't be impatient. Don't give up. Don't get frustrated. The, it's like time is nothing to the Lord. It's nothing. It's everything to you, but it's nothing to Him. And we can see why here God cares so much in verse 9. We, re- we see the revealing of his heart here. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some can count slowness, but his patience towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So again, this is massive here. This is massive here. This is Peter's second means of reassurance in explaining the seeming delay of the Lord's return. It has to do with his heart for the lost. An incredible heart for the lost. Notice the phrase, he's not slow in keeping his promise. I believe that's directly in response to the false teachers. Look in 3, 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. They say, the, the false teachers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. So the false teachers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? And Peter says, I don't want you to um, be worried about this. The Lord is not slow about bringing about his promise. All right, so he is, going to, he is going to act. But the reason why he's not acting now and coming back sooner the way you would hope, it's not because he's distracted. It's not because he forgot. It's not because he's trying to punish them in any way. It's because he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And here we see the incredible picture of the character of God. The major reason for delaying is because of his deep concern for the lost of this world. He desires relationship with his creation, with the people he created. Whenever a human being is born, he puts a soul into that person's life. He wants to be in relationship with those people. And I want to share with you a personal story 
of my understanding of God, uh, when I started to understand Him relationally in a huge and deep way, because it affected my life in a major in a major way, and I'll explain how. When Dan Jansen took me to uh, Kentucky, I'm sitting at, uh, you've heard this story before, but it's, I'm gonna take it a different direction. <laughs> uh, I'm sitting at uh, Professor Dennis Kinlaw's uh, table, and he's about 90 years old at the time, and there's a library on campus named after him, like that's, and he's a scholar, and he's a, a pastor, and he's a well-written author and listened to, he's a very well-known. But Dennis Kinlaw, I'm, I'm a fairly new Christian at the time, and, and Dennis Kinlaw, he's hard of hearing, and he's yelling at me at the table. He goes, Andy, <laughs> uh, do you know who God is? And I'm like, oh man, here's a professor with a library named after him asking this newbie who God is. Like, is this a trick question? And I'm like, and I just sort of, like, I, I just, I just sort of froze and paralyzed. I didn't answer. And he goes, Andy, God is love. That's not what he, that's not what he does, that's who he is. You know, that one statement made a big, big difference to me. That changed my theology and it changed my, my way I cared for the loss of my evangelism. Because I understood for the first time in a real personal way that God was relational. Now I had come more from a background that I was sort of like guilt and shame driven. God is more like, you know, he's watching you from heaven very closely and he's making, he's keeping close track on you to make sure whether you mess up or whether you do good. So that God's some kind of like judge behind his seat with a mallet and he's just watching going guilty, not guilty, guilty, not guilty. You're doing well, you're not doing well. Very sort of like a guilt and shame driven kind of uh, way of approaching the Lord. And so when I'd mess up, man, I'd beat myself up. And when I did good, I'd maybe sort of feel good about the situation. But when you understand God relationally and God is being loved, it changes everything. Because you're not looking at God as someone who's going to ditch you if you mess up or he's, he's, trying, he's going to uh, reward you uh, um, or thinks highly of you just because you, you did well. The difference is that he's viewing you as a, as a son, as a daughter. He uses family language to describe himself in the Bible. He's always uses family language. Father, right? Disciples, how do I pray our Father who art in heaven? Not our judge who's watching over me. You know, things like that. So this is really important because when you understand God relationally, it changes now the way you, 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 you view yourself and you view Him in terms of that. And those of you who have children can relate. You don't ditch your children, I hope, just because they mess up, right? You don't reject them and abandon them permanently because they've messed up. You are actually, you're hurt because the relationship was broken and you want nothing more than it to be reestablished. Now, why do I say all this? I have been learning as I've been sharing my faith and talking to other people that we all have been brought up with a specific brand of Christianity that we believe. I was recently talking, I know two people recently that were, had um, strong faiths, that were even in missions, and were evangelists, led people to the Lord, who have completely walked away from the Lord. They have just basically said, we don't want anything to do with God anymore. We, I know another person who's really right now wrestling with, with this whole thing about Christianity. But you know what's similar in all three backgrounds? 
And I'm not saying this is necessary. Well, it actually probably is a large portion, if not the full portion of the issue. All of them have come from background where it was a rule-based orientated in the home. They all grew up with parents who were strong believers. They were, but it was basically a shame-based, guilt-based uh, way of being raised. And the way they were treated and the way they were, when they, whenever they messed up, they were basically told that God's basically looking down on you in a negative way and so on and so forth. And it was rule-driven. These people have all walked away from the God or are struggling with the Lord because they were, bit, they were um, preached a certain brand of Christianity that they believed to be true that wasn't true. And so now, when, you, when I've been having conversations with them, I'm trying to undo what was done. Because I'm like, you don't understand God rightly. He doesn't operate like this. This is not who He is. And so it's really, really important that we, we're careful of what brand of Christianity we teach our own children. Do we teach that God is one of relationship? Or we teach them that it's about following rules and getting it right or getting it wrong. Now how we do that as parents is a massive topic and deserves a sermon of its own. We don't have time for that. But here's the thing. Clearly, God is one of relationship. He doesn't, he's, he's waiting for all of His creation, every single human being, to come into relationship with Him. And that's why He won't send Jesus now. He wants more sons and daughters in the kingdom. He wants to be connected to more people. If He sent Jesus back in two, uh, AD 50, you and I wouldn't even know the Lord. He wouldn't have been born yet. And God wants a giant family. He, he's got a huge kingdom with lots. He says, I have many mansions in my, in my, in my house. Or in my, in my uh, yeah. There's, many, there's many, many dwellings on my acreage. <laughs> lots of room for the new heaven and earth, the new creation. He desires relationship. Now we can see why God wants none to perish. And I want to just sort of finish with this word, Perish. Uh, in conclusion the word perish is used to describe the outcome of someone who refuses to accept the offer of Jesus to eternal life now in Greek the word means to destroy make void or die now all of these words though speak of the ceasing of existence how to destroy something it's the ceasing of existence or obliteration of something but when you understand that word and understand the word in New Testament times, that's not a true understanding of the word. See, in the biblical understanding of perishing, to be made void or to die or destroyed still means that one's body and one's soul is still exists. So you can perish, but your body and soul still exist. And it's important to mention the body existing and not just the soul. Look at Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him as able to destroy, there's the word perish, both body and soul in hell. I'm going to speak a lot about this in the next sermon, about our, our understanding of heaven and what does that actually mean. John 5, 25-29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs 
so physically dead, will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who commit an evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. If you're in the tombs and you're resurrected, it has to mean your body. Both those to a resurrection of eternal life and those to judgment. Now think about that now, so body and soul. But that, what it means then to perish is to be really in a place of punishment in physicality and in spirit and soul apart from God. Apart from God. It involves separation from Him and His goodness. Now the Jewish people understood that too, as being in exile. When they were uh, removed from Babylon, uh, sorry, when Babylon put judgment on them, and, or if you're kicked out of the synagogue, things like that, they, they saw that as being an exile from the, from the spiritual community. Again, you're, you're separated spiritually from them, and you're separated like, uh, physically from them. So again, uh, it's important to understand that this is a place of punishment apart from God in both these ways. And he calls it in, um, in, in Matthew 28, the place is called hell. Again, another sermon should be dedicated to what that would look like. But we don't have time for that. But here's the point too. Like I've heard some people say in my lifetime, well, I don't care if I go to hell because I've experienced it already here on earth. And I mean, it's hell here now. That's oh, a total misunderstanding. Total misunderstanding of what it's going to be like. Because people today experience God's goodness constantly. Constantly, but don't recognize it. Again, what's important here is that perishing is not God's first choice. He desires all to be in relationship with Him. He desires all humanity to experience the new creation in the future. And it's a pervasive thought throughout the Scriptures. Ezekiel 18.32 I take no pleasure, no pleasure whatsoever in the death of the wicked. I wish that everyone would basically repent and live. 33.11, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Speaking to Israel, that applies to us in principle as well. 1 Timothy 2.1-4, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all the godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. He doesn't force us to come to Him. He gives us the freedom to choose. But He says, if people here in verse 9 come to repentance, that relationship will be established. Or one can ignore His offer and continue to live independent from God and suffer the consequences. So what can we pick up lesson-wise from the passage? Three things, although there are more, but you can bring them up in dialogue. Number one, as believers, we are to be waiting in anticipation for the Lord's return. That's clear from the scriptures, all the ones I read before, from Jude and different places. We are to be waiting in anticipation for the Lord's return. That is what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We look forward to the new creation, the, 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 the closer intimate relationship that we can have because we'll be in His presence. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit given to us now that indwells us, 
but that's a, that's a far cry from the intimacy we share when we experience a new heaven and new creation. So, we're to be waiting in anticipation, but we're to keep busy. We're to keep busy. As we wait in anticipation, we are to keep a level head, pray, seek to meet the needs of others, be hospitable, and exercise our spiritual gifts within the community of believers. So if you think, I'm so, I don't know, I know, I want to fill my time, I don't have much to do. There is a giant list for you to accomplish uh, that would honor the Lord. Stay level-headed. Continue to seek Him in prayer. Meet the needs of others by being sacrificial and fervent in your love. Open up your homes to people. Exercise your spiritual gifts in the church community. And that will keep you busy as you wait for the Lord's return. There's that phrase, uh, some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Jesus and Peter are saying, I want you to be um, heavenly, uh, earthly minded as well. Earthly minded as well. And finally, our God desires relationship. It's the major reason for the delay in the sending of the Son. He wants all to come to repentance. No one to perish in body and soul.